Hello and welcome to Credit Shift News and Update. This week, I'm again Paul Sweeney, co-founder and chief strategy officer here at Webio, and I am joined today by co-pilot and co-founder Cormac O'Neill, CEO of Webio. And today we'll be exploring some of the recent news stories, events, reports and trends in the credit industry. Let's dive into some of the details. This week in credit industry news, the IMF has slashed the UK's growth outlook for 2024 from 1% to 0.6%. That's just half of what's expected for the Eurozone, which is eyeing a growth of around 1.2%. On a global scale, we're looking at a growth forecast of 2.9%. Inflation in the UK? It's expected to spike at 7.7% this year, but the, EM, the IMF sees it dropping to 3.7% in 2024. Switching gears to real estate. UK house prices have been on a slide for six consecutive months. Year over year, we're talking about a 4.7% drop. But it's not the same story everywhere. In the southeast, the dip is a steep 5.7%, while Scotland sees a modest decline of 0.8%. So again, seeing that regional differentiation. Now, the IMF isn't alone in its observations. The UK's Central Bank Financial Policy Committee is ringing alarm bells. Consumers are racking up credit card debt and opting for longer mortgages. They're trying to adjust to rising interest rates and living costs. The message here we're looking at a ticking debt time bomb. On to corporate health. The Bank of England has its own set of warnings. Companies in the UK are edging closer to higher default risks. This affects not just profits, but also jobs. Let's break down the numbers a bit. By year end, 50% of non-financial UK firms will struggle to meet interest payments, up from 45% last year. When we focus on medium-sized companies, the situation gets worse. We're looking at a 70% strain rate for firms with turnovers between 10 and 500 million. If this trend continues, we're hitting 2008 crisis levels of corporate debt. To cap it off, a quick look at savings, something I'm particularly concerned about. In the US, nearly two trillion in pandemic savings is drying up, expecting to vanish by the end of Q3. So that's already should have passed. In contrast, the UK saw a bump in household savings, 9.5% this last quarter, up from 8.3% the quarter before. So one of the things, Cormac, that I'm kind of keeping my eye on is how much money do people actually have in their savings to cover those increases that they're going to see over the winter months? And what uh, is this gap running into some kind of insurmountable kind of mountain? Yeah, so I think the what you said there in relation to the UK or the US side, sorry, my apologies, two, two trillion savings uh, drying up, uh, that is probably an indication um, that savings are running out, Paul. I know there was a bump in UK uh, percentages last quarter. Possibly people trying to um, 
squirrel away some money before before the winter months come in so they at least have some kind of buffer for uh, expenses, increasing expenses over the winter months. But mm, yeah, I, I think that's going to start deteriorating in the months ahead. The growth forecast, right? That is absolutely mirroring what you I'm hearing on the ground. I spent the last couple of days in the UK in various different parts and meeting a lot of businesses, both small and large. Um, the story seems to be the same across the board in that it's really, really tough out there. It's a difficult uh, trading environment. So that's all reaffirmation of what those numbers are, are telling us. It's a, quite a difficult climate out there for for mm. small to medium-sized companies. As we know, um, in our own sector, there's just so much, so many layoffs and cost cuttings going on. We know that. We're, we're hearing that, whether it's publicly announced or just um, from being in the industry. So there's a lot of there's a lot of pain out there for small to medium-sized companies. I know we talk a lot about consumers on this show, but um, I think when you look at small to medium-sized enterprises, there's a lot of pain. And although I didn't dive into the details of, of the Irish budget just announced there this week, but there was <clears throat> clearly a number of measures in there to try and help uh, companies uh, weather this storm that's already there. I was going to say it's coming, but I it's already there. So, um, you know, so let's, as you say, let's keep an eye on this one. Yeah. Yeah. The the savings one, I, I just think that the numbers they keep on going up again and again and again, and they just don't seem to be turning up in the rate of delinquencies that you would you would expect. Um, and the explanation for that is that there is buffer capital there. There's there's buffer savings in the system somewhere that's still working its way out. And um, yeah, I I'm just a little concerned about that. Okay. Yeah, but just on that point, you already mentioned it, but you combine that with what people are trying to do by stretching out mortgages, looking for longer terms, um, you know, maybe taking out extra credit, credit cards and, and different forms of mm. credit. So that's all bubbling yeah. up to a not a pretty conclusion, I'd imagine. No, but again, it's the, um, you know, everything's fine until the next quarter. It's like a... But even inevitably, like inevitable pressures, inevitable structure will lead to inevitable conclusions. It's just a matter of timing. And uh, I don't know, I, I just don't want to be one of those people saying uh, the sky is falling, you know, the chicken little analogy. Because, um, you know, I, I remember living in Ireland through the housing boom and it was like, oh, this can't go on. And it went on for like 13 years. Um, so who knows? Moving to section two. Uh, this week, we draw your attention to research connected to payments modernization. Uh, there's a KPMG report on payments modernization that serves as a guidepost to where the industry is heading. So let's unpack some of the key points. First off, most banks and building societies are making strides in payment modernization. 84% are already in the game or planning to be. They're putting an average of £27 million into these efforts with a two-year time frame. The focus for 71% of them is better customer experience, um, and they're also looking to boost operational efficiency and heightened security measures. Now, let's talk about trends. Adoption of new payment methods like real-time payments is picking up steam. 
It jumped from 40% in 2021 to 51% in 2023. On the flip side, efforts to create new revenue streams through digital innovations or overlays are slowing down. A 13% drop since 2021 indicates some frustration, perhaps due to sluggish advancements in open banking. Now, I did look around and found that Yapley and Truelair are two players in this open banking market, and they're pulling in revenues that don't quite match the operational scale. So at between 3 million and 4 million in revenues, while reputedly processing 34 billion in payments. Maybe they have yet to turn on the monetization tap for services and the money maybe isn't in the actual payment mechanism yet. Maybe it's the fragmented nature of open banking and finance across Europe and it's different strokes for different markets. But it is proving difficult to operationalize and get new services into the market on the back of this open banking uh, technology. Um, The next thing that I noticed was the appetite for uh, single software as a service based uh, platforms is diminishing. So how are, again, this might be unified, kind of a unified hosted cloud solution for payments. 75% of banks were all in back in 2021, and that's now down to 60%. And this is at odds with other market research showing a budget increase for payment modernization. So while most of that budget is going to cloud-based systems, many of those, I think it's around 40%, are vendor systems. So they're buying in a platform to do this job. It also seems, according to report, that legacy systems are as much a stumbling block as ever. They're still plaguing 3% more banks and financial institutions than last year. Until there's a broader shift to software as a service, this won't change. Uh, On the bright side, interoperability is less of an issue, down 7% from 2022. And as the industry uh, mandates pile up, the ability to scale and keep systems updated will be crucial. So what do we make of all this? The industry is pushing forward, but not without its hiccups. Fragmented markets and legacy systems are still speed bumps, but the overall momentum is towards modernization, efficiency, and I would say fair to say customer experience. Um, I think a lot of that we see, Cormac, um, maybe not at the scale of these larger institutions, but I think we're seeing a lot of emphasis on the payments, ease of use. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul, can I just say, we've just done a, a section on payments and you didn't mention buy now, pay later once. Are you feeling okay? Are you have you have you fallen have you fallen out of love with buy now, pay later? And and you you'll see this in the next section, Cormac. Oh, okay. No, no, I do apologize. Sorry, I, I'm getting I, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I think the, myself. the game here is so, is is fairly. Uh, you know, you can see this. I saw this in the old days in Telco Land. You, you try and build things internally. You try and build your own platforms and proprietary stuff. And you uh, end up uh, finding out it's much uh, more complicated than you thought. And you buy in a platform. Yeah. And the platforms these days have to be um, cloud. Although many, many banks aren't you know, going for fully cloud yeah. platforms still. So, so look, we know this firsthand. A few things here, right? A few things. So, first of all, look, in terms of legacy systems and, and built in-house system, you know, you ask an engineer, well, should we build this or should we buy it? You're only going to get one answer, right? So, that's 
Um, what's happened, we know from talking to the larger customers that we are now engaged with that legacy systems is a huge blocker for taking in new technologies. So we know that and that's, that's a challenge and that's a struggle. When it comes to payment, we also know that consumers want ease of use and self-service. So, so consumers now are used to paying over Revolut or Monzo or any of these digital banks and it's so easy. Right, so easy. You want to transfer money to a buddy, you know, one or two clicks, boom, it's gone. Right, as long as you type in the right phone number and you got the right uh, Joe blogs and not somebody else, it's really, really easy. Um, so we know that in our own industry, in, in the collection space, consumers want self-service. Um, they don't want to have to make payment by calling up somebody. They want to be directed to a digital solution that's self-service that allows them to make a payment, reschedule, all of those things. Uh, themselves. So we know that. Getting to open banking, we looked at this a while back and I'm still a big believer in open banking. I still think it's got a huge role to play. Um, but, you know, we set up our own internal pod to look at open banking and we're quite excited uh, about the potential for and possibilities. And, you know, to be frank, we didn't go anywhere with it. Um, and I think the reason is that we're not doing, uh, as I say, we, the industry, isn't doing a good enough job in educating the consumer to the benefits of open banking. So I, I, I think that's not going to change. Um, I thought those numbers of revenues that have been generated from those players you mentioned is, is surprising, right? So, Yeah, for sure. It's, it's, a, it's a proxy measure, um, for sure. But like, you know, you'll see payments... Like open banking payments are multiplied by 2.5, three times, like they're growing at a 300% rate. Um, but like, so I, I'm not quite sure, maybe the adoption of open banking is ramping up in, in payments, but the companies aren't making any money from it. And banks and building societies are not looking at new, uh, using that as a platform for new revenue streams. So it's, again, you know, some of the things that we try and do here on the podcast is just make people aware of maybe some of the information that's not coming across their desk and just go, maybe there's there's a contra indicator that maybe might need a harder look than, uh, than just jumping on the bandwagon straight away. Well, uh, you know, and just to, to, to harp on on the, the open banking side, like in theory, I think it's got huge potential and, and, and huge benefits um, you know, I just don't think we're seeing, I don't think we're seeing that filter through just yet. Um, it will. It will. It will. I, I think it's a matter of time. But again, uh, I think the Americans have a saying, which is uh, too early is the same as being wrong. It's like, because you've built the whole thing, you've invested in the platform, but you're too early. So you're, you, you die in the vine. Okay, moving on to section three, developments from the world of fintech. So NatWest is making strategic moves in embedded finance. Their partnership with MasterCard on click-to-pay seems conventional, but it's a convenience play that will likely pay off. Customers can preload cards onto their mobile phone and skip the hassle at checkouts. It's, they can pick a card, it's masked for extra security, and I think this is a super smart move to elevate the user experience. It's you know, I'm paying with my Apple Pay every time I go somewhere. Why not use my maybe NatWest cards? Uh, can I get maybe better experiences? Can it tie better to my accounts? I think it's a pretty good move. Um, and uh, 
Switching gears to Revolut, um, they've got mixed headlines this week. And the good news, they're closer to a full UK banking license, thanks to uh, SoftBank's agreement to change some of their share structure. Uh, and this will basically put them in position to widen their product suit um, or suite. They've already rolled out loan offers uh, to me last week, Cormac. I got emails in offering me to apply for 30,000 euro loans. Wow. Sign up, Paul. Where do I sign? <laughs> so that's, uh, you know, car loans, I'm sure house loans, I'm sure all sorts of, of loans are going to start coming through these cards. Uh, the bad news is they're under scrutiny from the UK financial regulator over releasing funds from flagged accounts. So although it was a relatively small amount of money, the takeaway is that know your customer and compliance tech are non-negotiables for fintechs going forward. You just can't make these mistakes. Um, I think we'll probably hear a little bit more about that um, in the in the coming weeks and months. Um, but uh, you know, it, Revolut's just a a, a great story, uh, a, a real roller coaster of a bank. Um, one worth keeping your eye on for you know how regulated uh, they stay and uh, how compliant they are with their. Uh, submissions to the various authorities. And then on to Monzo. So Monzo, they're making a second attempt to enter the US market, signaling their global ambitions. They're hiring Connor Walsh, formerly of Cash App, as the US CEO in what is clearly a, a, a preemptive kind of strategic move into the US market. Now, whether UK fintechs can replicate their success in the US is a story yet to unfold. It's a reciprocal test, given that U.S. fintechs are eyeing up U.K. and European markets. So we often hear about all the American companies coming to Europe. I wonder how many of our European companies are succeeding in uh, the U.S., Klarna being, I mean, an obvious huge big winner in, in that market. So, Cormac, you, you were mentioning earlier, uh, just to go back to an earlier point you made, that you were at the... Um, the UK Vulnerability Gala, all focused on addressing vulnerability in credit and collections. Was there any noteworthy takeaways from that event? Yes. So let, uh, before I just give you the, the summary of that, let me just go back to know your customer. Um, we we flagged this on, on this call, on this show before. That is an area that I think you're going to see a lot of innovation happen. Um, and it's an area that you're going to see a lot of investment flow into. I know from firsthand, from going through this with various things we've done here at WebView, that it's a clunky process at present. Um, and the streamlining it, using innovation to streamline it, uh, there's, there's, there's gold in them there, Hills. Um, so, but back to your question, Paul, sorry. Yes, I was at the vulnerability um, summit in Manchester. Really good, really good. Great to get to, out there and meet everybody in our industry and see what their challenges are. Um, and issues are, and there are plenty of them out there. Right? So some of the, the main themes that are um, our customers that, that, that we deal with are facing is compliance is a huge challenge for customers, particularly in the, we're talking the UK here and we're talking about, you know, consumer duty and, and the other requirements of, of consumer duty. So that's a real headache for them at the moment uh, to be able to meet those requirements uh, in a cost-effective manner, right? 
tight margin business. So you need to be able to um, meet your regulatory and compliance requirements in a cost-effective manner. So that's certainly um, front to center. Number two is, and we spoke about this earlier, the pending explosion in uh, new entrances into the debt trap, if I can call it that. People who previously uh, weren't having financial difficulties now are finding themselves in this debt trap. And that's um, that's something that the industry is grappling with. First of all, it's an increase in people that have to engage with. You may think that's a you know a huge opportunity, but how do you do it and again in a cost-effective manner? And how do you um signpost to these people how you know what help they need, what information is out there, what supports are out there, um, you know, for, for people who find themselves in this position and 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 may be vulnerable. Like I always make the argument that Anybody who falls into financial difficulty is vulnerable. Uh, it's about assessing the degrees of vulnerability. So that's a that's that's a huge that was a huge theme uh, at the conference. Now, what was great to see, and great because it's the business we're in, there was a real desire um, at the event to understand how AI can help uh, companies meet these challenges. There was an absolute desire. Uh, for people to inquire, how can I use AI? Whether it's conversational AI that, that we do or other forms of AI, there's an, a, an open willingness to engage, learn, where can I bring this technology into my organization to, to help me meet these challenges? Like if I go back two years, um, you weren't really seeing that. It was kind of like, yeah, look, we'll, 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 we'll listen to it, but you know, they weren't actively engaged. Whereas this week, that was certainly something that was great to see. Um, and the companies really are, I think they're starting to get, and again, look, we have to give a bit of credit to ChatGPT on this for kind of highlighting the art of the possible and what can be done now. Um, so, you know, so they're kind of the, the, the theme. Lots of challenges for our industry, but, you know, very positive in terms of the desire to meet those challenges Um uh, that are out there for sure. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head there when um, Mark was doing his uh, five minute intro to the session. He asked uh, who here has played around with ChatGPT and uh, a huge number of the hands went up. So I think when you have a consumer product educating the market like that, people pretty much start to see how they would use it themselves. I'm actually giving a talk uh, myself in... Um, Paris at the Tad Hack Summit um, around the area of how um, large language models, ChatGPT type technologies could transform the um, the contact business itself, like platforms. And I was just messing around with exploring the different possible ways that it could impact them, and it's fairly significant. Like it's a big, it's a big disruption. Um, so. Maybe I'll, I'll share those slides after the summit um, on our website, but it's, um, yeah, it's a, it, it's a big disruption. Yeah, it is. So there was kind of like two, two angles that people were talking to me about how, how could we use um, AI. And the first angle was how can we use it um, for our customers? So that's the people who are in financial difficulty. How, how can we use it to get solutions to them to understand if they're vulnerable? To, to handle FAQs I and mean, all of that. How can we use AI? The second part, a lot of, the, not a lot, but a significant amount of discussion was around 
the agents and contact centers, right? So agents and contact centers that are tasked to carry out these conversations, whether they're digital or whether they're voice, very stressful, very difficult, um, yeah. very difficult job. And a lot of turnover in that industry in terms of, you know, people moving on. And, and that can be, as we know, that turnover is expensive, right? So the second theme was, okay, well, how can we use um, AI, and particularly Gen AI, to help our agents get answers quicker? How do how can we use it to train them? How can we use it to give them knowledge at the point of contact, i.e. the time, when I say point of contact, the time that they're actually talking to the consumer? Um, where can AI uh, play a role? So they were kind of like the two areas that people were were coming up to me and asking about, you know, um, how, how they could use AI. So um, so it's great. Uh, look, it's great to see. It's great to see that level of engagement. Um, uh, and again, repeating myself here, but we do have to give a bit of kudos to 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 our friends in OpenAI for. Um, hey, it, it would be remiss like, of me not to mention the fact that um, Webio this week were nominated for two AI awards at the um, the AI. Uh, Paul, we don't like to talk industry. about the awards. We don't. We don't. We don't like to talk about all those awards we win. Well, you know, we're very modest and 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 all the rest. So, uh, well, it is for best use of uh, AI in a consumer uh, customer service, and also the best uh, ethical use of AI. So, hopefully, uh, people will see that we're walking the walk in this regards. Anyway, Cormac. I'll draw a line there this week. Thanks again for joining me. Um, I will remind everyone uh, to subscribe to Credit Shift uh, to get these uh, fascinating weekly updates on what's happening in the industry. And if you will subscribe, that'd be great. Or drop over to Webio, webio.com to see what is up with Webio these days. Thanks very much.